Gary Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. When Civil War soldiers faced the test of battle, some of them measured up and some did not. Abraham Lincoln reviewed the death sentences of Union soldiers convicted of violating the Articles of War, and he routinely pardoned what he called the leg cases, those whose hearts said to stay but whose legs took them away from danger. Today, we'll look at an innovative approach to the question, what made some stand and some run? It's a book called Heroes and Cowards, The Social Face of War, and its authors are our guests. Please join us for a conversation with Dora L. Costa and Matthew E. Kahn on Civil War Talk Radio. less art kids get, the more it shows. Please visit us at americansforthearts.org. Art. Ask for more. A public service message brought to you by Americans for the Arts and the Ad Council. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you today on a Friday in April 2009 from the quiet campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, here in the otherwise deserted Brewster Building. It's Good Friday, the Friday before Easter. Sensible and pious people are home. Uh, No one else in the department seems to be up and down the hall today. So we could throw the doors open and not worry about the uh, political and uh, bureaucratic conversations taking place out there. There would be no interference, but we're safely snug in the office and ready to talk Civil War today. As always, uh, just because it's from the university doesn't mean it's on behalf of the university. I do not speak for them, nor do they for me. Our guests will speak for themselves likewise, for their own institute, not for their own institutions. And in other housekeeping matters before we get started, as always, thanks to those who have sent uh, contributions to the show to help keep me buying new books uh, week after week to talk about with you. If you're interested in contributing, the PayPal uh, address is an email address, civilwartr at aol.com. And if you uh, send $20 or more, I'll send you a copy of Did Lincoln Own Slaves, the paperback edition. And if you want to spring for 25 or more, uh, you could Instead, get a copy of All for the Regiment, the Army of the Ohio. This is the first edition hardback, which I have the few left over of and would be happy to uh, sign and send your way. As always, also, uh, you don't need to send money. Feel free to send email and let me know what topics you'd be interested in, who you'd like to have on the show. We've had some very interesting guests this season, and I always appreciate the suggestions of new guests to join us. Uh, you can learn about the show uh, from the website you're at right now where it's being broadcast, Civil War Talk Radio on World Talk Radio with their spiffy new interface. Uh, it is not as user-unfriendly as the old one. Uh, it is not conceivable that there could be a less user-friendly site than the old one, uh, so the new one has to be better, but it really is better and uh, helps you find out what's been on the show 
a little more readily. Uh, and there's also cwtr.org, which you are, uh, uh, Bob, our friend of the show, has put together on his own dime in his own time. Uh, and uh, you can look there for descriptions of some of the past shows. And finally, in our introductory moments, a reminder uh, to come and visit uh, with me if uh, you're anywhere I'm going to be in the next few months uh, speaking about uh, Civil War topics, particularly Abraham Lincoln in this bicentennial year of his birth. I'll be continuing the Did Lincoln Own Slaves World Tour this Tuesday, April 14th in Leesburg, Virginia at the Loudoun County Civil War Roundtable. I'll be at uh, Harvard University in Cambridge. That's uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, not uh, Cambridge, England, as the Harvard uh, lady once said when ordering tickets, train tickets in London. That's Cambridge, England, please. Um, Cambridge, Massachusetts, that'll be April 25th, uh, part of a weekend-long symposium with all kinds of really interesting people, uh, David Herbert Donald, Doris Kearns Goodwin, Drew Faust, James McPherson, uh, Vernon Burton, uh, Michael Vornberg, Harold Holzer, Frank Williams, uh, many others. Uh, don't miss that. Uh, May 5th, I'll be in Doylestown, Pennsylvania, the Bucks County Civil War Roundtable. May 12th, Richmond, Virginia, Civil War Roundtable. And May 16th, in Louisville, Kentucky, at the Filson Historical Society. Uh, and then in October, back here in North Carolina, October 22nd, at the Dorsey Pender branch of the Civil War Roundtable, Reconstructed Rebels will host me to hear about Lincoln and have all their preconceptions shattered. The trips, uh, I'll be there for all those commitments. Uh, those uh, I want to assure listeners if anyone's planning to be there. Even though today here at East Carolina University we got uh, a note from the Chancellor, uh, not from the Chancellor, from the State Budget Office, that all spending is done for the year, all travel, all purchases, all everything. Uh, nothing is to be spent of state money or even uh, foundation or grant money, apparently. It's quite severe. Uh, those of you in the academic world uh, will grasp the differences between these different funding sources, but the bottom line is uh, for, for this fiscal year, we're, we're broke, we're busted, pockets turned inside out. Uh, if the chalk breaks in the classroom, uh, pick up the pieces because that's all you're getting. Uh, if the computer breaks, that's a harder case. Uh, we're not quite sure what we're going to do in our department here. Uh, I am acting chair of the history department just for a few more months. My temporary appointment will run out, and I'll be able to hand it off to someone else and join the chorus of complaining faculty instead of uh, the faculty who are trying to deal with the problem. Uh, and I look forward to that, uh, to uh, being able to carp freely without actually having to, to try to fix the problem. Uh, that sounds too harsh. I don't mean that my colleagues are not doing anything. We're all in the same boat together. But it's been quite a year uh, at this institution. And, and when we welcome our guests, I'm sure they will have uh, stories of their own uh, budgetary nightmares at, at their places. But that's what's going on here at East Carolina this week. Uh, travel all canceled. Um, technically, I'm not supposed to go on any of these trips. Uh, I'll be there, listeners, uh, regardless if I have to go without letting anyone know in advance, and then return like Lincoln to his inauguration in 1861, sneaking into Washington at night in disguise. I'll return to my department that way, wearing a scotch cap, uh, and uh, just not tell anybody I went on these trips. They're generously funded by the host organizations, 
not by North Carolina taxpayers, so it's not violating the spending rule to go there. But the rule says no travel, whether you pay for it or not, which I don't think I can abide by because my hosts have paid for me to go, and I owe it to them. So I'll see you at one of those places, hopefully, listeners. Let's move on back to the 19th century now at, at long last for our hour-long vacation away from current budgetary traumas. And uh, welcome our guests, uh, Dora Costa and Matthew Kahn. Uh, professors Costa and Kahn, are you there? Yes, hello. Hello, yes. Wonderful. Thank you both for joining me today. I uh, appreciate you doing that. Um, you're both at, at uh, institutions of higher learning, is that right? Yes, we are. We're at UCLA. Uh, and, and how are things there uh, on, on the budget front? No one quite knows yet. There's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of rumors flying around. Well, that, that's, uh, that's universal here, too. Uh, the rumors are, are, are rampant. Um, sometimes we look to California and say, well, at least we're not in California. Um, so, so I don't know if that's a fair thing to say. Uh, we've been looking at 7 10% budget cuts here and, and griping mightily about that, but I understand things are worse uh, in your part of the world. These are tough days, but I, um, I, I, I'm an optimist, but I, uh, we, we need some things to go right. Well, we, we certainly do, uh, and, and hopefully they will. Things will turn around. If it's one consolation uh, studying history, uh, that studying history provides, it's recognition that other people have been through a lot worse than, than what we're facing, and, uh, and they made it one way or another. Uh, well, it's hard not to study U.S. economic history and be an optimist. Uh, that's a... a very good point, in the sense that it, it always uh, comes around. Uh, but could you elaborate on that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, just imagine if you were a Russian economic historian. <laughs> that would be worse, definitely. Um, well, now, tell me a bit about your backgrounds, uh, what fields you study uh, there at UCLA. We're both economists. It's, uh, I'm an economic historian, and uh, Matt does uh, urban and environmental economics. So in some sense, it's uh, we're, we didn't come to this work interested just purely in the Civil War. Uh, we kind of uh, fell into this accidentally. How did that happen? T- tell me about the accident. Um, well, this is a database that I've been working with for a long time, and initially... And let me remind people, like, what the database is that I'm working with. And basically, this is a set of uh, the life histories of Union Army soldiers. The sample is now some 41,000 men, 36,000 white Union Army soldiers, and roughly 6,000 black Union Army soldiers. And you start with them with their records while they were in the Army. You link to all their pension records, and then you link to the available census records. So you can really get these life histories of these men. And my initial interest in studying these men was to understand about uh, long-run changes in retirement patterns and long-run changes in health and uh, what determines health. But uh, at one point, we realized that there's... So let me backtrack a bit. There's a lot of interest among social scientists in when people behave in 
as good citizens. And a lot of these studies have kind of been done looking at sort of smaller stakes issues. So do I join the local PTA? Uh, do I volunteer for various other organizations? And we realized that, look, what's really great about the Union Army is that we're talking about really life and death situations. If you desert, you're leaving, you're definitely saving your skin, but uh, you're also making things a lot harder for the men who are left behind because Union Army units don't get replenished, so it's going to be really tough on the guys who are left behind. And the other thing that we realized is we can actually observe have a really good idea who are the members of someone's community. I mean, most of the time, it's we live in L.A. L.A. is a huge area. I mean, we hardly know our neighbors, like let alone people in, who are further away from us. But in contrast, it's a, if you are a member of a company, which is about 100 men, you know these guys very well, and you are with them all the time. So we really know who is a member of your social network. So it's really an ideal situation for actually trying to understand how social networks affect people's behavior. But when you started, you mentioned uh, social scientists are interested in studying examples of good citizenship. You gave examples like PTA membership. Um, those, I presume, are, are in modern society. Those are yes. contemporary. So examples. in modern yes. societies, people have also looked at developing countries as well. It's uh, are you willing to spend money to uh, for a new well, for example? And, and, and to pick up on that point, they, so, so th there's this. Uh, using modern data, there's this literature on who's a good citizen in terms of their time, in terms of being civically engaged with their neighbors, and voting for policies where the government redistributes or provides for public goods. But uh, we, uh, part of the payoff of the data that Dora and, and Robert Fogel built was this ability to look at these current questions using historical data. So it, the, the first question I guess I would have as a historian is, uh, are the conclusions that you're able to draw about 19th century Americans regarded by social scientists or by historians or by anyone for that matter as applicable to 21st century Americans? I think that what we've been struck by is how much similarity, so yes, context does differ, but what we've been struck by is how much similarity there is between what we find in the past and what people find in some modern societies today. So what we find is that if you look at who deserts, there are many things that matter. So individual characteristics, for example, it's uh, if you are uh, richer, you're less likely to desert. Uh, if the union was winning recently, you're less likely to desert. Um, if you're from a more pro-Lincoln county, you're less likely to desert. But what mattered much more than all of these other factors, and this was one of the most ideological wars in U.S. history, 
was how diverse your company was. So the more diverse your company in terms of measures such as uh, place of birth, age, uh, occupation, the less likely you were to desert. And this also shows up in other studies that people have done. So, for example, you can kind of think of what's called sort of the Florida effect, where if the school children are very different from uh, the people who are paying taxes for the schools, you're less likely to vote for school taxes. It also shows up in developing countries where you might have different cases, it's uh, different ethnic groups. Again, if there is a lot of these, if there are a lot of these differences, you're not likely to vote for a lot of these public goods or to volunteer, et cetera. So, Jerry, if I could pick up on that, and in what has generated a little bit of controversy, is these results are slightly politically incorrect. So, so there's two different ways to present them. In more homogeneous communities, people are better citizens. That's intuitive to everyone, but you, the flip of that is a little bit uncomfortable. That when people are in communities, more diverse communities, they are not. They are free riders and more likely to be bad citizens, empirically more likely to desert. But, but a theme that Dora and I emphasize is there are our results, our empirical results show that there's short-run costs of being in a diverse environment, but long-run benefits. Something I hope we discuss is that people learn more when they're in a more diverse environment, and we document evidence of that in our Civil War setting. Well, that I'm not trying. I may have misunderstood. That were you saying when? Uh, so our listeners understand the conclusion you're drawing here. Uh, in terms of measuring desertion, and that's a concept I want to talk about uh, a little later. Um, in a company where the people are more diverse in age, birthplace, and other characteristics, there's more diver- more desertion. There is more desertion. Okay, that, that's that's what I. I Want to make sure we're clear on that? We have that as a, we interpret that as evidence of being a bad citizen uh, of, of of shirking on your civic duties. Well, let's go back just a little bit for, for the benefit of the readers, uh, listeners who who hopefully will become readers of this book afterwards, um, and talk uh, about the basic design and the questions asked. We'll come back and do that in just a few minutes. We'll take a short break. This is Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. What made some men stand and some men run? Dora Costa and Matthew Kahn couldn't interview them. They've all been dead a long time. But they've got some answers anyway. We'll be back to talk with them on Civil War Talk Radio. In an instant, my son could make anyone smile. In an instant, he was gone. The driver was looking for other cars. But he didn't watch out for my son crossing the street. Imagine, in the time it takes to stop for someone in the crosswalk, you could save a life. Or 
change yours forever. A message from the Federal Highway Administration. Every day the chances of becoming a victim of mercury poisoning increase. Mercury poisoning may cause neurological damage that impairs learning, vision, and memory. And mercury itself has become part of our everyday lives, absorbed by certain fish, taken into our bodies, and passed on to our children like a common cold. But you can stop this. Log on to earthshare.org and find out how. A public service message brought to you by Earthshare and the Ad Council. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Dora Costa and Matthew Kahn, authors of Heroes and Cowards, The Social Face of War. Uh, this book is a... Uh, book that looks at Civil War soldiers uh, from a social science uh, perspective or applied social science methodology to look at uh, this this aspect of our history. Uh, we've, we've done a little bit of that in the last uh, month or so here on Civil War Talk Radio. We had Roger Ransom on not long ago uh, to present an economic view of uh, the Confederacy. Uh, we'd like to look at different, uh, as many different methodologies as possible there might be, and as often as not, no no formal methodology at all. Many of the authors, uh, as, as long-time listeners know, have uh, heard me mention, are not trained uh, as historians uh, or as economists or as anything but uh, perhaps lawyers, doctors. Uh, and yet they write books about the Civil War, often very successful and popular ones. Uh, the topic is open to all. Uh, in uh, uh, Matt and Dora, if, if, if I may use first names, I, uh, please call me Jerry. Um, the, uh, the the design here, uh, as you said in the first segment, was to take this, this enormous data uh, set of Union Army veterans based on census records, pension records, uh, wartime records, and deduce certain characteristics of these people, and then correlate it with uh, whether they were good or bad soldiers. Uh, the measurement for whether they were good or bad, uh, which, which uh, you talked about finding surrogates for, for good citizenship or identif- ways to identify who's a good citizen, who's a bad citizen, uh, use the phrase desertion several times uh, uh, to identify bad soldiers. Uh, what, uh, what do you, how do you define desertion in, this, in, your, in your context? Desertion was decided by a military court convened in the field. So this is something that shows up in the records. Uh, we also look at other things such as uh, going AWOL, um, being arrested for various infractions. So we do have other measures of good citizenship. So desertions are people who are convicted of desertion. Is that correct? Yes. Some of them, they weren't necessarily there. They skedaddled and uh, were gone, but... Uh, the army decided, yes, this person had deserted. It's not that he was AWOL. So is there a way to... Uh, so there is a differentiation between those who, who go AWOL, who might leave briefly and come back. Yes. Uh, uh, desertion. Did the records differentiate between those who deserted under fire, who left 
during a battle and those who simply left on during a march or in camp? Uh, there, you can you can sort of where you could see it is we know where each we know where from regimental histories where a regiment was at a certain time. So yes. There is sort of a lot of this, uh, so desertion does happen around battles or just before battles. But we can also, it also happened uh, while men were still in camp. So you get sort of various of these types of things, and from the timing you can figure out what type of desertion it was. I, I, I raise this issue because I mentioned the show introduction, uh, Abraham Lincoln's reference to the leg cases, the men who... Uh, may have deserted in battle uh, because they just couldn't will their legs to go forward into danger. They, uh, he tended to forgive those people, to pardon them. Uh, and, and one might argue that these are not bad-hearted men. They just couldn't bring themselves to, to, to walk into almost certain death. Whereas you have other people uh, who, who jumped the bounty, for example, who deserted repeatedly, who had no intention of serving their country, um, Surely there's a qualitative moral difference between these two kinds of desertion cases. Right. Um, but camps were also dangerous, too, though, so I don't want to say that only uh, the men, that the men who had deserted before a battle were somehow superior, because uh, most deaths from the, in the Union Army were from disease. And there are many accounts about people writing home saying that... Uh, Disease really was much more dangerous than the battlefield. Well, but but I'm arguing the, the the opposite point that those who desert in battle are the brave, relatively brave ones. They did stay in camp. They faced the camp diseases, but the bounty jumpers, the ones who who simply showed up, collected the bounty, and deserted the next day, never even went to the camp, um, and never intended to serve. Uh, it's not that they were just unable to master their fear. They had no intention of. Doing yeah, anything. Yeah. There are a fair number of accounts different. of those, but it's it's not really a large proportion of desertions. And, Jerry, the overall fact that always impressed us is that only 9% of Union Army soldiers deserted. And so, from a self economists always talk about self interest. As economists, we were impressed at what a low number that is. And yet, that was the right strategy to survive the war. Right. Now, you, you point out that the, uh, in terms of surviving the war, uh, well, actually, let me, what I was going to mention is that you might survive the war, but you couldn't go home again uh, yes. after deserting. That, that <laughs> uh, certainly limit your options, and some men may have stayed for that. But that brings us to, to the central question of why uh, some men stayed and some men didn't. And uh, historians have looked into this for many years. Uh, an obvious takeoff point in a book he referenced uh, on a number of occasions is James McPherson's For Causes and Comrades, where he looked at some tens of thousands of soldiers' letters and drew the conclusion that uh, political ideology was much more important to soldiers than, uh, than, than had commonly been accepted. People tended to accept the sort of World War II small group cohesion argument for what made men stay in battle. They stayed for their buddies. And McPherson challenged that and argued that it was much more ideologically rooted. Uh, how, what does your work reflect on, on this question? We're not denying the importance of ideology, because it definitely is there. So it's uh, men who are from a more pro-Lincoln county were less likely to desert, men who uh, were volunteers, men who uh, enlisted early were all less likely to desert. But 
despite that, Sardova, the importance of buddies is much is stronger than the importance of ideology. In, in, so in our statistical approach, we are trying to have this horse race. And so, uh, and, and so in, in, in the way we set up the statistics, we can take a look at the quantitative, uh, how big potatoes are, is, is personal ideology uh, versus uh, this cohesion of your unit in determining uh, the propensity to desert. The, the as a historian, my response to hearing that is, is to think that that sounds great. That's that's what we all want to do is be able to look at the past and say here's here's how it was. We've measured it now, um, but it always gets squishy when one starts to to figure out how to measure something like political ideology. Uh, you used, uh, for example, uh, living in a, a pro or anti Lincoln county as as your surrogate for political ideology. Is that correct? Yes, that's one of them. Other measures were... Uh, were volunteering early. Volunteering, and particularly did you volunteer early. So, the... Now, so arguing that the people who volunteer early are more politically motivated, um, it could be described as circular, though. If you're saying those who volunteered early were did so because they were politically motivated... Um, if we assume that political motivation is what made people volunteer early. So, so we're, uh, we're back in a circle between those two o- factors. Only, so, so where, Jerry, where I'm sympathetic, empiricists face the challenge that, as you said in the intro, we can't interview these men. But on average, we're saying if, if a soldier enlisted in 1861, that this man is, was more ideological than the average man who volunteered in 1863. And then within those set of men who volunteered early, are those who were in more homogeneous, cohesive companies less likely to desert? That's the flavor of the statistics we're doing. And, and I have to say, I, I'm, I'm going to keep pushing back because this, this fascinates me and all the people up and down my hallway use the same historical methodology, so I never get to have a conversation like this. <laughs> um, but the, the assumption that you're more ideologically motivated if you volunteered early is just the problem. Uh, certainly there were those who volunteered in 63 and not 61 because they were not old enough in 61. Yes, uh, yes. I mean, we can account, we can control for age and uh, various other observable characteristics of people. But but we're still not getting to to the point that political ideology is why people volunteered in 1861. That, that it may have been that the more adventurous volunteered first, or the uh, you can control for things, I suppose, like like economic need uh, uh, to determine whether people needed to volunteer because they couldn't get any other job. Uh, but uh, unless. Uh, unless you have someone saying uh, in an interview, which we can't do, or a letter home, which we could find, uh, I volunteered because I believe the union is the greatest government on earth and I want to protect it. If we don't have that, we don't really know that that it was political ideology that made them volunteer early and not late. You know, you could certainly have, uh, say, more adventurousness being a motive for people who volunteer early. In this case, it's, uh, it's not clear to necessarily be the ones who would stick it out. And yet, you do have these people who volunteer early being the ones who stick it out. And the men who volunteer early, they're not getting the bounties. It's uh, it really was 
they were paying a much higher price for their early volunteering than the men who volunteered later. I, I, that's, I think, widely accepted, and I would certainly agree with that. Um, I, I think it's fascinating to be able to to correlate and say those who volunteer early desert less often, and I can't imagine anybody arguing with such a finding uh, but I'm sympathetic to your point that there is a mixture. So for people, we agree that for people who enlisted early, there could be diversity among those for the reasons why they did. Uh, we would push back and say that on average, the people who enlisted early were more pro, pro-Lincoln areas. And, and so a statement about average versus diversity within that group of early enlisters. And, and that, that starts when, when you begin, as you say, Correlating those factors that that the early enlist if if the people are both early enlisters and from a pro Lincoln county, uh, then it's reasonable uh, certainly to say it's more likely that they were ideologically committed to the Union cause. Um, th- one might still uh, now I'm just fantasizing. Uh, <laughs> perhaps there's one or two people, uh, and then you've got the snowball effect where once one people person volunteers, others go along. So you just put your fingers on something that fascinates us, this, this social interactions. And, and so, and, and so we, I, I'm sympathetic to that point, but that's actually exactly what we're trying to capture in our statistical framework of what kept, if within a unit there starts to be some desertion, does, does that snowball? And in some of our other statistical work, we, we, we documented this of desertion feeding on itself. And, and uh, I mean that I find very interesting. The the uh, uh, well, I, I started to interrupt you. Go ahead. Oh, I, I was done with my point. Okay. I, I, uh, then let me ask this about the the kinds of statistics that you you have come up with here. Um, you, you mentioned uh, uh, economic status, uh, how well the war was going, affects uh, likelihood, um, politics, uh, uh, birthplace. Uh, there, to some degree, the, the and everyone, uh, economic, uh, empirical historian or uh, traditional, more impressionistic historian, no matter how you do it, we're all prisoners of, of the data that we have. <laughs> yes. And to what extent do we run the risk? And again, this is not limited to empirical history, but any history of the uh, the drunk looking for his car keys under the streetlight, because the light's better there, even though you dropped them down the block. We're very sympathetic. I guess I'd like to make two points and then let Dora have a shot. Something that when we thumped our chest, we said, we, Dora read countless diaries from the Civil War, but a, a limit to diaries is, is, is men who are literate and men who kept these diaries. And so the beauty of Robert Fogel and Dora's data set is, is, is being representative of, of the Union Army. And so we, we have wondered whether the diaries are a select sample and are missing perhaps the stories of literate, illiterate men and undersampling the slave ex, the ex-slave experience. And so we felt pretty good that we were less guilty of looking under the, the, the street light for the keys than perhaps some historians. And, I, and I'm intentionally trying to cause a fight there uh, <laughs> because our sample is representative. We tried 
Given the cards we were dealt, we tried to have a horse race of many possible hypotheses for what explains desertion, and we entered with an open mind. And so to some degree, what we've reported to your listeners is what we found. We, we didn't have a favorite hypothesis going in. Uh, Dora? Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, one of the, I actually did expect to find that ideological commitment mattered much more. Uh, I should point out that second to company diversity, it was the most important factor. So, well, that brings us back to company diversity, and that's, that is really interesting, that um, uh, in a company where the, where the members are diverse in the sense that they're not all from, uh, from the same place or the same age, occupation, the same occupation, uh, now that would almost, by far the largest occupation would be farmer, is that correct? Yes. Uh, so, so, I mean, the, the North is still overwhelmingly rural in 1861, uh, my students tend to imagine the North as a you know, Dickensian. Uh, <laughs> That's they need to take your class. They they do, and and uh, the North is more industrial, but uh, but both sides are overwhelmingly rural in 1861. Uh, so so when you say a uh, common occupation, since there isn't going to be a factory town where everybody's say a steelmaker, uh, it really means everybody's a farmer. So we're looking at rural communities. Uh, but there is cohesion there. There's, there's a, they're from the same place. They're about the same age. Um, those groups, those, co- those socially cohesive groups in the same communities have lower desertion. And, and Jerry, we, we can even take it a step further. Uh, Dora and I also examined conditional that you ended up in a POW camp like Andersonville of who survived those camps where the death rates were 40% for Union Army soldiers. And we document that men with the same last name from the same hometown were much more likely to survive those camps. And so we're, we're interested in social networks through, throughout the war experience. And, and I was looking at my own work on, on the Army of the Ohio, and I dabbled in this sort of thing, uh, doing a analysis of how many uh, the kinship networks within the 10th Indiana, for example, mm-hmm. and concluded at least 20% of the men were related to one another based on last names in common and other factors. And your conclusion uh, certainly drives with what I found coming at it from the the other direction that... Uh, uh, social cohesion did matter and did reduce desertion. Uh, we have to take another short break now, but we'll come back and talk more about uh, the Civil War with Dora Costa and Matthew Kahn on Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel where the world comes to talk. We can't measure what they said. We can't talk to them any longer, but we can find out what they did. We're studying Civil War soldiers today on Civil War Talk Radio. In an instant, my son could make anyone smile. In an instant, he was gone. The driver was looking for other cars. But he didn't watch out for my son crossing the street. Imagine, in the time it takes to stop for someone in the crosswalk, you could save a life or change yours forever. A message from the Federal Highway Administration. 
Every day, the chances of becoming a victim of mercury poisoning increase. Mercury poisoning may cause neurological damage that impairs learning, vision, and memory. And mercury itself has become part of our everyday lives, absorbed by certain fish, taken into our bodies, and passed on to our children like a common cold. But you can stop this. Log on to earthshare.org and find out how. A public service message brought to you by Earthshare and the Ad Council. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Dora Costa and Matthew Kahn, authors of Heroes and Cowards, The Social Face of War. It's an a empirical study of Civil War soldiers, not looking at what they wrote, but at what they did and who they were as measured by an enormous database uh, designed and, and built by uh, Professor Costa and Robert Fogel, the legendary economic historian, uh, in which uh, the pension records... Uh, wartime records, census records, uh, have been mined to put together pictures of the lives of, of thousands upon thousands of veterans. And from these records, uh, the book, uh, Heroes and Cowards, is drawn that, it, that correlates these factors with who was likely to desert, who was likely to stay. And uh, in, in our last segment, we closed with a little, uh, with, with a moment of agreement that uh, it is social cohesion, uh, the similarity of a group, uh, young men all from the same community, who are less likely to desert uh, or more likely to survive in a POW camp. In your book, you use the phrase social capital. You talk about this this concept that people have uh, a supply of uh, friendships, of human bonds that. Is as valuable in its uh, in its different way as economic capital. Is is that a fair uh, uh, summary of the point you made? Yeah, you can consider it sort of your rolodex. <laughs> so if you know a lot of people, you're you're better off than if you don't. Uh, yes, and, and, and this applies to civil war. Not only is it good to know a lot of people, but sort of the better you know people, the better off you are. <laughs> Except in the final chapter, we talk a little bit about the dark side of social capital. So in New York City, many people are talking about Bernie Madoff uh, and, and his uh, and his Ponzi scheme. If people had trusted him less, would there have been more due diligence and less money handed to him? Of uh, of does does friendship sometimes crowd out uh, uh, due diligence? So uh, the other the opposite New York City example is a Kitty, Kitty Genovese story uh, where, where people pay no attention to a stranger being murdered um, where there's no social capital uh, in that community. Right, uh, right. So, so now in the Civil War uh, unit, in the company or the regiment where, where this capital is brought in, uh, it also develops over time. Uh, is that something you were able to measure? We, the, the, what we do document is with cumulative, you're right that, uh, so think of our universities. If, when two roommates as freshmen are randomly assigned to each other, these guys can become friends over time. 
And so, and so uh, Robert Putnam would call that bridging social capital. In our statistics, we document that the more time men spent in their unit, that their desertion probabilities fell. But because our soldiers are all dead, we, we can't we can't, and maybe Dora will disagree, we can't do a great job on bridging social capital, except the fact remains that in the more diverse units, uh, the, the desertion rates were higher. What, in, in my own look at the Army of the Ohio in 1861 and 1862, uh, and again, impressionistically, not statistically, the, the companies were almost all homogenous. They all were recruited uh, at the same time early in the war from, from local communities. But the regiments they formed, 10 companies to a regiment, uh, might be from all over a state. Uh, the, the 10 companies might not have anything to do with one another. And initially there would be a sense that those guys in Company B are you know, from downstate and we don't know them, <laughs> care about them. But that would change. And eventually the regiment would become the focus of the men's loyalty and, and, and their their. Jerry, I can speak to that, and this, you're raising a very important point. Uh, in Professor Fogel's sampling design, he randomly selected companies. So there were companies or groups of 100 men, and there, in the Union Army, there were 10 companies to a regiment. So unfortunately for us, while Professor Fogel, when he would pick a company, he wouldn't pick all 10 companies in a regiment. So we're, we're unable, while we're able to recreate companies, we're not able to recreate regiments. Yeah, what we can tell you, though, is if you look at uh, who survives Andersonville, then uh, there is this effect, a positive effect, it's small, of uh, having another man from the same company with you. On surviving the camp. On surviving the camp. Mm -hmm. Now, the effect of having another man from the same regiment with you is smaller than having another man from the same company with you. Interesting. And and that would make sense intuitively. But was there an effect at all of having someone from the same regiment? Yeah, on survival, yes, in yeah. Andersonville. Mm -hmm. If you uh, take the same man, and if if you handed him a friend, perhaps not a buddy from the same regiment, we find a statistically significant effect of a higher probability of surviving. So a story would be that these men found each other and helped to nurse each other and perhaps shared food or helped each other with health problems in the camp. Yeah, and it's also actually in the camp it was better not only to have a guy from the same company with you, but a guy from uh, the same company but with the same last name. And we can't really tell are they related or not. We're just guessing they might be. That same hometown. <laughs> but the odds would be strong, certainly, if they're yes. in yeah. the same community, same last name. Now, throughout the, the, the book and throughout our conversation, we, we keep saying uh, someone is less likely to desert, less likely to uh, or more likely to desert. In, in ordinary conversation, likely is a, uh, is a predictive word. I'm, it's likely to rain today. Uh, we're not actually predicting this in the sense, if, if we are, I, I can predict the outcome of every Civil War battle. Just name one and I'll be able to <laughs> pick the winner for you. Um, we're, we're looking backwards. So is this a, whereas you say it's likely to rain, that's based on, on uh, causative effects. If it's cloudy, it's more likely to rain because the rain comes from the clouds. I guess what I'm asking is, this, is all your data just a set of correlations or are there causes? So, so if we were playing defense, we would say for any hundred men in this situation, so take a hundred German men who enlisted in, 19, in 1862 who were in a homogeneous company, uh, our statistical model gives you then a, a prediction of the numerator that 11 of them were likely, are predicted to 
desert or would would have deserted. So these conditional averages to make the jump from correlation to causation, uh, we would need to convince the reader that our measures of community of uh, company diversity are not proxying for something that we have not included in our data set. And so uh, that's always the fight in social science. Is there some key unobservable that uh, it, that our observable community indicators are proxying for? And so th- that's always the fight. And and so we we know we've documented a correlation, but the cumulative evidence uh, makes us jump that line. And maybe, Dora, I'll let you in. Yeah, no, I mean, I very much agree with that. It's... Uh... I think one of the things to emphasize is, yes, we say less likely to, but it's partially because we're talking about averages. Mm-hmm. It's uh, The Germans were less likely to desert than the Irish. Of course, there were still Germans who deserted. But on the whole, if you just picked a random German, he would be less likely to desert. Well, this, I mean, and this is where it really becomes important to distinguish causes and, and uh, uh, correlations. If, if you said that, you know, blue-eyed people were less likely to desert than brown-eyed people, no one would argue, you know, it's the blue eyes that made them desert. Um, with Germans and Irish, you can begin to argue Germans came to the United States uh, in larger numbers because of their political motivation from the revolutions of 1848. Yes, and I think that's where we have to depend on the work that historians have done to understand why some of these factors might be true. It, well, it especially becomes a, 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 a time bomb when you when you get to race, because then when you, you discuss uh, black soldiers and their likelihood of desertion, uh, if you just got the, your work abbreviated into a headline, blacks more likely to desert than whites, <laughs> um, that wouldn't be a good thing. Uh, but if you were able to show why this was, that this in fact was true, and I, I'm not saying it was, but if if if, if you explain the reasons that uh, soldiers you know, kept in segregated regiments and given less food and less pay, and, and the so blacks on. were less likely to desert than whites. But in fact, the, the opposite. But that also, but to take it the other way, that doesn't prove superiority uh, any more than no, the other no, result proves uh, inferiority. I think we have to go back and try and understand why it's. Uh, I think in the case of the free blacks, it's uh, they really had much more of a point to prove than a lot of the white men because they wanted to gain citizenship. In the case of uh, the former slaves, it's uh, they couldn't go home. So, I mean, they really had to uh, basically stick it out or else they might end up being enslaved. But, uh, Jerry, I think you're raising a very valid point that it's very important to have an apples-to-apples comparison and to say, for uh, so the real experiment Dora and I would have loved to have run is to have had two twins who, so they had identical backgrounds, identical uh, characteristics, and put one in a more diverse company and one in a more homogeneous company and see how their war outcomes like desertion and surviving PO camps differ. And what we can't run that cloning experiment, but we try using our detailed data set to come as close to that as possible. When you compare a white soldier and an ex-slave, they're so different on so many dimensions that it's not a kosher comparison. And that's, that's I think, something historians would be sympathetic to. You can't isolate the, the variable that makes them different or makes their behavior different. Uh, it's a, a complex network of variables. 
But the one one thing I hope as a non-historian is we've worked hard to try to meld uh, both insights from history, from diaries, and what can be learned from a statistical analysis. And and so as an outsider to your field, trying to, to achieve the best of both worlds. And I just want to say to the listeners, you, you'll want to read a copy of this book, Heroes and Cowards. It's, it's a very interesting, uh, different sort of book about the Civil War. I, I pulled it off the shelf uh, at the library a few weeks ago uh, because it was delightfully slender and not uh, something <laughs> long. And uh, in our field, uh, the books tend to be awfully long sometimes. Uh, and I was initially skeptical when I started reading and said, ah, you know, every week I've got a doctor or a lawyer or somebody poaching on my field. Uh, <laughs> I love the Civil War. And sometimes they're, they're, they're wonderful books, sometimes they're not. Uh, this, here's another book outside the field, and I start reading it, and I was just fascinated. Uh, I, I think it, applying these tools gives us insight that historians don't get uh, with our uh, revulsion against theory almost in our field. Um, having said that, let me bring the hammer down on one point historically. <laughs> it's only uh, fair, uh, if I if I may. And, uh, you 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 your studies of Union soldiers, and you make one uh, sort of throwaway comment that you imagine uh, Confederates would give the same result, uh, saying that you expect Confederates, and I quote, would have the same Victorian concepts of honor, duty, and manhood as Union Army soldiers. But listeners to this show uh, will remember last week when Nina Silber was here, we spent a whole hour discussing how the concept of manhood differed radically between the Union uh, and the Confederacy, how what it meant to be a man was not the same, uh, based based on the old-fashioned journals, diaries, etc. Um, and I would argue that, that, that I think you would find substantial differences in the, the world views of these two societies. Uh, but that's a that that's not what your book is about, and over, overall, it really is a fascinating piece of work. We and there, there's a sociologist at Columbia University, Peter Bierman, who I believe has studied North Carolina uh, Confederate soldiers, and so so I I would have loved to have had a sample of Confederate soldiers, and that's uh, uh, to have been able to have sort of symmetry here in this project. But as you point out, also the records are just not there for the Confederacy. Yes, sure. yes, it's much harder to. I mean, also, it's a, once the Confederacy falls apart, you've, you've also got a completely different situation at the end of the war. So once it's clear that the war is over and you've lost, it's a, you can't compare those desertions which, with what occurred earlier. No, it, it, it's, it's different altogether. Uh, as our time runs out, a quick technical question. In some of your footnotes, you, you begin by saying, we estimate a probit model. <laughs> <laughs> It's jargon. I don't get it. What does it mean? So, so, I. This is a very fair point. We want to know what in English we. Any day it can either be rain or shine, and so we wanted. So you could ask, what's the probability next Wednesday it will be rainy? What an economics nerd might do is run a probit on what's the probability it will be rainy uh. next Wednesday. Okay, that, that's and, a, and that's so it, it's a statistical bad jargon. I guess we wanted to minimize our book sales. Uh, and well, so you, it was buried in the footnote. That's where I found it. So I blame yeah, my so co-author. We wanted to put in uh, some things to make sure that economists would understand what we were doing. It, it's always the challenge. You want your colleagues to respect, but you want real people to read it. Um, well, unfortunately, we are out of time. Uh, Matt and Dora, thank you both very much for being on the show. Jerry, thank you. Thanks. And listeners. You'll want to get a copy of this book. It's 
different, and I think you'll learn something. Uh, And as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the world talk radio network for more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest please visit worldtalkradio.com the world talk radio network where the world comes to talk the views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the world talk radio network its staff and management 